Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are, are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Hey, everybody. Don't forget to rate and review. So I mentioned the reviews on here. I know I, I harp on you guys sometimes. See, I know... I know how many of you are listening to this, and I know how many reviews I have on iTunes. And if everyone that was listening would go and take a minute uh, to write a review, um, that would be a real game changer for this podcast. There would be way, way, way more reviews, thousands more reviews than the less than 100 there are um, now. So not to, not to give you a hard time, but just to illustrate the importance of this one makes me feel good when i see that but also when i'm when i'm looking for potential guests i direct my guests to the itunes reviews and so when they see all those glowing reviews that you guys write that helps me get guests that helps uh that helps me get new listeners it helps the search engine optimization so the more reviews are on the itunes um or or stitcher or whatever you're using the the more the podcast is going to come up. So, you know, the idea is hopefully people will be able to Google science comedy podcast or, or something like that, and it will pop right up to number one. And uh, it increases my ratings on the iTunes charts, which is another way that new people find new podcasts. So uh, this would help me out tremendously. I put, uh, I put money into this. I put lots and lots and lots of time into this. Uh, n- not only all of the research and everything else that I that I do, uh, which I enjoy, but also just lining up guests and making all that happen is is very very time consuming, and that's not necessarily uh, the the fun part. That's kind of the busy work stuff. So uh, what helps me get through, um, uh, you know, when I'm when I'm having a hard time getting motivated to to uh, look and find new guests and, and, and do all the kind of busy work end of it. Um, it. It helps when I see those reviews. It gets me excited. 
And I get out there and I work harder for you guys, for myself as well, but for you guys. Um, and uh, yeah, that's about it. Um, sorry, <laughs> sorry for the lecture. I, I don't like um, big, long announcements in people's podcasts either, which is why I don't sell ads on this show. But uh, just, just a little reminder for you. And I really appreciate it and enjoy today's episode. It's a fun one. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Evan Palmer, who is Associate Professor of Human Factor Psychology here at Wichita State University. Thanks for joining me today, Evan. Sure, and my pleasure. Thanks for the the wonderful tour of all of uh, all the different uh, labs and various projects that are uh, going on around no this problem. department. Glad to have you out. So, what is uh, what is human factor psychology? Human factor psychology is the study uh, of how people interact with technology, technological systems. It's a study of um, how you can make systems safer, easier, more intuitive. Um, it, maybe one way to understand it is to think about uh, ergonomics. So you, you have ergonomic keyboard or ergonomic mouse, which is designed to work with you, your physical structure. Um, you can think of human factors as being kind of the, the more intellectual or psychological side of things. So how do I design a website that makes sense to the way humans think, that is intuitive and easy to use, that fits your mind the way a mouse might fit your hand. Mm. Um, so it's, it's an applied area of psychology, which means that uh, we're grounded in theory. We, we start with knowledge of the human mind, in my case, in particular, visual perception, visual attention, cognition, uh, and then we think about real-world problems, um, doctors working in hospitals, people working in nuclear plants, uh, any number of things. Aviation, there's been a, a long history of human factors work in aviation. And then you look at how do people interact with each other? How do people interact with technology? How can you display information so it's readable? Can you lay out instrumentation in aircraft? In, in World War II, Human Factors was sort of where it started in World War II, and a lot of it was um, how do you design planes so that anybody could learn to fly them? Um, it used to be in, in World War I and, and earlier, they would fit the person to the job. So you, you're going to run a submarine and you need really short people. You got enough people coming into the army. You just pick everybody <laughs> who's five, six and, and less. Sure. Uh, so you'd, you know, you wouldn't adapt the technology to the person. You'd force the person to adapt to the technology. Yeah. And then here I am at six, four. It's <laughs> always been my dream to run a submarine. This isn't fair. Can't do it. Yeah. Right. So, um, uh, instead, what they finally learned in, in World War II was uh, it's just too hard to try to find, you know, like 
some five foot six one eyed you know <laughs> guy who can do some something um, so they figured okay look we we better design things so that they're usable so that people anybody could come in and be able to be trained up and and use it and and not make mistakes you know what it, this is this is somewhat relevant and it's just this ridiculous story that just popped into Go, my head that i think it. that you might enjoy um i so i have this i have this friend um a, a comic friend in boston uh dan balder um you know, go ahead and throw his name out there he's one of my very good friends and uh, and um he is like a savant he is he's a very high functioning comedian and like kind of low functioning in like just understanding how regular old life works okay and uh, like he he won this boston comedy festival when he was like 19 years old or Mm. something like that but i borrowed his car um to go rock climbing one time a few years ago when i was staying with him and then i come back and he's i'm six four he's much shorter than i am Uh and he got in his car afterwards and he was like he was like you broke my car (laughs) I'm like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, the the seat's all screwed up. I'm like, what? He's like, I'm like, no, there's like levers to adjust the. He's like, what? He didn't know that there was levers to so adjust the seat. He's been driving around in that car with the way the seat was at the dealer. It must have just he. I think he just must have tried a bunch of different ones at the dealership, <laughs> and then was like, "All right, this one fits." He finds the car where somebody about his size had test driven it before him right. and it set up the everything. Perfect, fits like a glove. Oh this is gosh. the one for me. <laughs> so, so this is how they kind of used to design. Uh, things yeah. back at World War One days, and then well, yeah, came like around. Henry Ford, you know, you can have any color you want as long as it's black, right? Uh, right, where, where you know, people inventing technologies and, and making these things are not, or they hadn't traditionally taken into account how people are going to use them and and that sort of thing. So, uh, uh, you know, human factors is a huge field, uh, and and one sub area of that that's kind of related is usability testing um and here at wichita state we have the software usability research lab run by dr barbara chaparro and so she gets contracts from major corporations um major like she's got one with the major soft drink corporation there's you know it's one of two you can probably figure out Mm -hmm. um telecommunications companies websites that sort of thing and we'll do things like um they're going to roll out a new web page uh, or they're doing, hopefully, they bring a human factors person or, or usability testing person early in the design process, and we can do iterative, iterative testing. So here's a version, okay, have people try real-world tasks that they're going to actually have to do with that website. So mm-hmm. um, find a link to send this article to somebody, or find this product on the web page, or compare these two products, or pretend you're shopping for shoes, what would you do? How would you look? How would you use this website? And uh, giving people representative tasks where you know, okay, ideally it should take you four clicks to get to this place. How many clicks does it actually take them? Where do they take a wrong turn? Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you give them, you know, interview them, say, okay, what did you like? What did you not like? So there's a subjective portion, but there's also this objective portion of 
how easily and how well you, you can use something. So um, usability testing um, is great when you have a product and it's involved in the design from the beginning. So, you know, you know somebody like um, Barb Chaparro will work with a company and they'll say, okay, here's a, here's a smartphone and we've just done a new keyboard layout. Uh, okay, test it in your lab. She's got representative phrases uh, and she'll say, okay, she'll recruit people, bring them into the lab from the target demographic, try texting this phrase. How many mistakes do you make? How long does it take you? write up a report with all that feedback and send it to the manufacturer. Okay. They tweak the keyboard and they send her the next version Mm -hmm. and then she does the next round. Mm. So that, that's, um, that's the kind of stuff we do. And, and, um, it's, it's really good experience for our students because they get to, you know, they're graduate students. They're taking all these classes about biological psychology and cognitive psychology and human factors methods but then they get to work on a real project for a real corporate client and they're writing a report and they're doing an executive summary and hmm. all that kind of thing. Yeah, it's interesting. I, um, this may not be the best example, but I, I bought a new razor recently. I hmm. was like out of town. I forgot my electric <laughs> razor and I don't really like using um, the blades. But um, So I go and I'm, I'm going to... My one needed new blades anyway, and I was like, well, maybe I'll just buy a new one. And who knows how good – I have kind of sensitive skin. Yeah. I was like, you know what? I'm going all out. I'm going to buy just this, you know, it's like a $120 oh, razor wow. or something stupid like that. I feel like <laughs> such an idiot now. I get the thing, and it's the dumbest design ever to, to switch from just a, the regular razor over to – the straight cut sort of thing. Uh-huh. You have to actually take the head off and then there's another head. So, uh, so now you have these two different pieces that are like getting lost and it, yeah. and it doesn't, it, and, and, and it doesn't, there's not a single thing that's like working any better than what my old one. I ended up just getting new blades for my old one and I used oh, that man. and I wasted $120 <laughs> on this stupid thing. But you're, you guys are doing stuff, but more in like the apps and website domain. Right. Um, which is, this is important stuff for someone like me to know who I have a website and oh, yeah, I okay. also, um, it, you know, I, I, I put out a lot of, um, I, I sometimes do Facebook ads and uh-huh. stuff like that for my shows. And you, you have a, a study that might be kind of particularly, oh, yeah. um, relevant to that. One of the things that you've worked on. Sure. Yeah. So we, we, we did some work, um, looking at websites and, and I'm a perception guy, so I'm, I'm interested in how people search for things and how they find things, how they, their visual attention works. And we thought, um, let's look at how you perceive web pages. Mm-hmm. And, and there's this really interesting phenomenon. People sort of intuitively know this, but it's actually a thing, which is called banner blindness. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the idea of banner blindness is um, – you go to a web page, and if you think about how the typical web page is organized, you, you have, like, content on the left. Uh, I'm sorry, navigation on the left. You have, like, some content in the middle. And then on the right side of the page, they have banner ads. Mm-hmm. You just don't look at those. You don't pay attention to those. You're interested in the story. Like, if it's a news story, you're interested in the story in the middle. Right. And like, when the Internet first came out, it's like – You'd want to have like a big flashy banner right, right on the page because that's going to get everyone's attention and people are going to click right on that. And it, and it worked 
right in the beginning for a little while and then people eventually kind of became numb to this effect and now now it's like they see something flashing it's like oh i'm ignoring that right and and i think it happened pretty quickly i yeah. mean which is interesting from my perspective of well how quickly can we learn the spatial structure of some new stimulus like a, a website um well so if you if you have these banner ads particularly if they're on the right but also if they're above the content to the top area, um, people just don't look at them. I can, I can put you in an eye tracker. I can say, all right, um, there's a piece of information I want you to find on this web page. It might show up in the content. It might be in an ad. It could be anywhere. So they're told explicitly, you need to consider ads when you look for this, for the answer. And so I'll say, okay, find such and such piece of information. And uh, we'll do 30, 40 trials like that where, okay, now go find this piece of information, find that. And if it's in a banner ad, particularly if it's on the right, not only do people not find it, they don't even look. Ah, that is disheartening. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook charges and, me and, money for and, a worthless advertising product. Well, you're you're playing the law of large numbers with, yeah. with advertising. I mean, what Facebook's able to do is they're say, okay, we, what's your target demographic? It, you know, tw- 20 to 40 year olds or something, right, and, you right. know, okay, well they, Facebook can put those ads in there. So even though there's uh, a small percentage of people who, who might click through or perceive, perceive them in the first place, then click through um, it's some percent. I mean, it, it must work. Right. So if you're going to do a thousand ad buys, you'd, you'd rather put it in your target demographic. Yeah. It's, well, uh, one interesting thing about Facebook ads, and it's it's pretty irritating sometimes because I have to like tweak things and adjust things because you'll get ads rejected all the time, hmm. mostly based on if you have more than 20% text in an ad, huh. they'll reject it. They want it to be like a picture or an image or something like that. And so... I have found that, you know, if I can have an artist make an interesting picture, uh-huh. that tends to, I mean, I don't know, I don't have eye tracking software and everything, so I, I can't well. <laughs> fully tell what's going on, but right. it does seem that the more interesting the picture is, the the better chance that I have of well, getting you, people's attention. You uh, you mentioned text, and, and um, that's actually the, the study that, that we did, mm. so there was this, this known banner blindness where if it's a graphical ad people don't look at it and you might think okay well that's that's because graphical ads are very different than the text content right mm-hmm. if i'm reading a news article i'm looking for words well, what about um text advertisements like google adwords or things that they they also put on the right hand side but they're made of text and they're entirely text so the question we asked was all right if if i'm going to look for something on a web page and I know it's a word uh, and I'm going to tune my visual system to pay attention to words and search through text. What if there are text advertisements? Do those now get picked up because you're kind of in the mode of, of reading text? And we were able to establish that no, <laughs> they do not get picked up. Hmm. Um, even if their text ads also um, is particularly if they're on the right, um, if they're above the top, um, there was a certain number of people who considered those as part of the content. And if they conceptualized it as part of the content, they would search through it um, for the answers. We even did a study where uh, I said that navigation is typically on the left and the ads are on the right. 
Um, and so I, I call this our bizarro website study. We flipped those two things. So we put the, the navigation on the right where the ads typically are, and we put the ads on the left where the navigation is, where people habitually look. And we thought, you know, so you might think, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mix things up. So Norm, I'm going to put the ads in a new location. So is, is the fact that you're ignoring these text ads because they're always on the right? And I, I know to ignore the right side of things. Well, if you put them on the left, within 45 seconds, or maybe it was a minute, it was in the first three trials of the study, people had flipped and they started ignoring the left. Oh, that's interesting because I, I thought maybe one of the factors was that you read left to right, so you would go left first. But that's uh... Well, people do, and, and it's interesting too because there, um, there is this characteristic uh, F-shaped pattern when people read it, if you do a heat map with eye tracking, you get much uh, greater amount of time spent looking on the top left and it kind of fans out to the right and then sort of fades to the right side of each page as, as you read and then your eye goes back to the left. Mm. So, yeah, you, you do tend to look more on the left side of, of content areas. But despite that, people still didn't look at the text ads. Um, so it's. It's some combination of the visual features of text ads, knowledge about the spatial location, the fact that we're able to learn about the, the layout of a new website within a minute or two and then adjust our eye movement behavior to that already. So the, the, the practitioner takeaways we had from that article said, look, just obey website conventions um, like navigation on the left and on the top and content in the middle. Just go ahead and obey those conventions that everybody uses because you actually had less text ad blindness when under the conventional form than under this unconventional. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So it not only did they switch, they ignored them even more so than they than they did with the original. So if you're huh. if you're a, a web designer and you're trying to get people to to look at your ads, don't monkey don't monkey with people's layout. They, you know, there's a lot of learning that goes into that. We have expectations about where things should be. Uh, people enjoyed it better. They liked it more. And they, there was less text ad blindness huh. uh, in the original. So you're just stuck with it. You're just going to get a small percentage of people and that's all there is I think, to it. You know, if, I, if I want to put, say, a, uh, a mail list sign up or something like that on, mm -hmm. on, on my website. Maybe I could stick it in the middle somewhere. Well, in in your website, it's you, they're already there because they're they're interested. Right, right. So that's a great place to put it. With with, with Facebook or anywhere else, you're right. you're competing mm -hmm. with whatever it out. They're they're just trying to get their news feed or mm. or whatever it is. I see. Um, uh, so so you gave me a, a little tour of. Um, your uh, lab where you run some of these studies and mm -hmm. and you were you were showing me some of the um some of the gamification work that oh yeah, you're doing. yeah. Can, so can you explain gamification sure sure this is this is kind of our new fun area um we're looking into um so gamification is when you take game like elements and apply them to a non-gaming situation um, so for instance, I think a great example of this is Fitbit. Fitbit, um, has these badges, you know, if you do a certain, if you go up a certain number of flights of stairs per day, um, you get a badge. Uh, it's kind of fun. It, you know, it feels a little sense of reward, like, oh, okay, you know, I, I, I did something. 
Uh, Audible does that. I mean, I uh-huh. don't do have the Fitbit thing. I should, but uh, I listen to um, audiobooks quite a bit when I'm when I'm driving. And yeah, and uh, you'll get back like congratulations, you listened for six hours or something like that. Or this, right, know, there's all these. There's a million different um, categories of badges and stuff that that you win. And and it's <laughs> it's funny because I I very much. I like to think of myself as like above these kind of tricks, yeah, yeah. even though I know that I'm not. But um, but I'll get a badge. I'm like, ooh, look at me. Who's the big reader around here? And then I'll look around at all the other badges that I need to complete and stuff. Um, but yeah, that's uh, it's it does it seems to work. Well, it's it's it really works. Um, it really works for things that are kind of boring. And mm-hmm. you don't really want to do. Uh, it, it can add another layer uh, of sort of interest on top of things. Um, giving people points for their performance. I mean, points are just a just a, an abstract concept. I mean, I you know I can easily program a couple lines of code, and boom, you're you're getting points. Yeah, and, and, and anyone that's seen the show at midnight knows that points are an ab- abstract, arbitrary right. concept. But but all of a sudden, if you start giving people points for things, mm-hmm. they're more interested. Uh, you know, in the studies that we've done, um, they report that they like the experiment. They think it's more scientifically valuable so for, so for whatever reason. <laughs> they're they're more likely to um, be willing to do the experiment again. And uh, we asked a really interesting question, which was, would you be willing to refer a friend? So, like, if your friend was interested in doing it, would you recommend our laboratory would you recommend our studies and people are significantly more likely to do that if we add this gamification stuff hmm that's interesting because i've seen some studies like that with um i'm not sure if you're familiar with it because i'm probably going to screw it up but um about about how something like some incentive if you if you pay people Mm -hmm. to uh, you know, get a friend to do it or whatever. Oh, yeah. But how much will they actually believe that after the fact? So you pay, I, I think it's that if you pay someone um, to refer someone and then after they refer people or whatever, then you ask them, oh, yeah. how worthwhile was this? They're like, oh, very worthwhile. They actually did convince themselves. Yes. Because, so, so you're able to kind of replicate a similar thing, but with without money, just with these imaginary. Yes. Yeah. So, um so you're talking about a classic study in cognitive dissonance, um, mm-hmm. which was by Festinger and Carl Smith in the 1950s. And um, that in that study, they had people do a really boring experiment. And then they, they told them, OK, now it's a boring experiment. They know. But at the end, they say, go out into the waiting room and tell somebody that this is an awesome. This is great. This is going to be a lot of fun. And that's one condition. Just go tell them. Uh, I, I know the two conditions were like they gave them like one dollar or five dollars which in the 1950s was the equivalent of like twenty dollars now um and people were uh felt less kind of cognitive dissonance when they got the twenty dollars uh because they thought well i'm just saying i'm lying to this person but i'm doing it for the money so i i I know that there's some some reason yeah that's what it was i had it the other way but if you but but in the one dollar condition they lie to the people and then you ask well how now i'll give you a survey at the end like how and, and this is actually – I know this study because uh, th- th- we use that survey in, right. in our work. So how scientifically important was the study? How would you – you know, did you like it? Would you do it again? If you only got the $1, you rated the study higher. 
Because you wouldn't go lying to someone over one dollar. No, <laughs> no, yeah, you got to live with yourself, right? Yeah, so yeah. you you convince yourself you actually liked it. Um, there's another interesting thing with with money uh, that that comes into this, which is I thought maybe where you you're going at first, which is uh, Dan Ariely has has done some work showing. Um, if if you pay somebody, that can actually sometimes be worse than not paying them. So, like, imagine your friend comes over and helps you move, and and you know they're you're lifting heavy stuff, and you work all day, and you get sweaty, and at the end of the thing, you're like, man, thanks so much for your help. Here's five dollars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually some small amount of money is worse than if you had given them nothing. Because right. if you if you gave them nothing, then they can think. Okay, well, I did this out of the kindness of my heart because I'm a good friend or whatever. But if you give them a, a small amount of money that's not really worth the effort, it's worse because then they think, well, I did it for this small amount of money. It, it, it's, it's not about the friendship anymore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's interesting. It's kind of like that it's the similar study they did at the daycare or whatever where people were showing up late to pick up their kids. And so then they started fining people uh-huh. if they showed up late. Well, then it got worse because then people are like, well, I'll just pay the fine. Then. Oh, that's so right. It wasn't like a moral thing. They could make it a money thing. And, right. And, it's a, uh, it's a counter into it's, it's counterproductive. Right. And, and that's actually um, some of the thoughts that got us into this line of research. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it all started because we, we were doing research in air traffic control displays and, mm. and, and trying to find ways to kind of change the icons and optimize them to make, make it easier for people to glance at a display and, and see the altitude better. Anyway, this was an experiment that lasted for like an hour and 15 minutes and it was in a dark room and it was a really tough task. They had to look at a simulated air traffic control display and tell me, was there a potential midair collision or not? Um, and people kept falling asleep in the study. Or, uh, or the other thing that, because you're, you're dealing with undergraduates who are, who are probably taking Psych 101, and, and usually what you do at a university is you require people to come in and, and they do the study. They have to for right. credit. Um, or the other thing you do is you, you pay them a flat fee. So if you do my study for an hour, I'll give you 10 bucks or 15 or whatever the, the going rate is. So people were um, essentially blowing off the task. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, they're, you know, they start, maybe they start at first and they go, okay, yeah, this is, I'm going to do this task. And then after 20, 30 minutes, they just start answering randomly. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and you can see it in the data because it's like eight or 10 seconds per trial if they really search the display. And all of a sudden they start getting these sub one second trials. So they just start answering randomly. And, and then you got to throw out their data because, mm-hmm. you know, that, that participant didn't really do the task. So it's bad for the researchers. Uh, it's bad for the participant. Clearly, they, they were bored. Mm-hmm. They just blew it off. Um, so that was, that was originally what got us thinking about like, man, you know, what's the problem here? Um, can, can we get, we want good data People want a good experience, and we're having neither. So what can we do to make people more motivated? And, and that's where we started thinking about gamification. Actually, first we thought about paying people. Uh, but particularly if you pay people a flat fee, um, the rational thing, if you're a completely rational consumer, and I'm going to pay you 15 bucks to do my one-hour experiment, the rational thing to do is to speed through the experiment as fast as possible so you maximize your earnings per hour. Mm. So we're still back in the first problem, which is people are, are blowing off the task. 
Um, so that's where we came up with the idea of gamification. So we, we put people into this visual search task. Um, in, in a typical one, you're looking for a red or a green circle. Um, there's a line inside that's either horizontal or vertical, and, and you have to press a key, either a horizontal button or a vertical button as fast as possible, and that's, our, that's how we gauge your performance. Uh, and we would just give people points. Like the faster they responded, the more points they got, as long as they got it right. Uh, and then every once in a while, we would say like uh, randomly, oh, that's t- times 10 for the bonus points on that trial. You got five in a row right or something. Like yeah, that. and we had a, a streak counter. So, you know, how many did you get in a row? Um, and then in a later task, um, color is not important anymore. Now just look for a particular shape. And the colors are in the background, but don't worry about those. Just look for a particular shape. And what we found was that um, people's attention was automatically captured by these colors because they had been rewarded for them in the previous version, in the previous phase of the experiment. So um, there were a couple of things I think were really cool out of, out of this research. One was people liked the experiment a lot better um, when we had points and, and sound effects. We, had, we play sound effects, these kind of snappy sound effects. Um, the sound effects, well, the, the points are what made people like the experiment. The sound effects are what were responsible for the attentional capture effect. So the fact that you heard this kind of, uh, we have one that's just like an electric whip sound. It's like, whoosh. and and you, every time you got a times 10 bonus, you know, times 10, whoosh. and 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 somehow that auditory signal locked into your brain and changed the way you perceive the world visually such that you prioritized that red or green color. Mm. So it's a cross-modal effect. And, uh, and and people's attention gets captured by those colors. Mm. Even though it's no longer relevant to... No. Yeah. The... Yeah. And, and, and other researchers in the field, this is, this is a, a, an area of the field called value-driven attentional capture. And, and usually it's done with money. So you find a red circle, I give you 10 cents. You find a green one, I'll give you two cents. And so, you know, you, you get excited. You're, you're earning money per trial and, and all that sort of thing. And then later on, not surprisingly, the, the green and the red capture your attention. We were able to not use any money and just gamify it mm. and, and, and show it's shaping your attention. And, and to me, this is – it reminds me of um, you ever play Skyrim? You ever play the game Skyrim? I have not actually. Well, um, if, if you play Skyrim, one of the things you can do is you can like gather plants uh, and, and make potions out of them. And when you first start playing the game, you know you run along the, the trail between two cities, and you just run along. And and I don't notice any plants in particular, but I started collecting certain plants, like purple mountain sagebrush or whatever it was, and. I, I noticed that pretty soon I'm running between these towns in this, in this game and my attention's getting grabbed like, Oh wait, there's a, there's an herb I need or, Oh, there's one over there. And so somehow my visual system changed so that it knows what those plants look like mm. and captured my attention. So I'm, I'm stopping and I'm gathering mountain sagebrush or whatever it was. And so that was kind of what I'm really excited about was, okay, maybe we have kind of cracked the code for how these video games are sort of shaping your attention and changing the way you see the world. And we can kind of distill it and and isolate it and do it in our laboratory, which is kind of fun. Hmm. Yeah. 
I was just, as I'm thinking about how video games motivate people, I was thinking of this. There was this news story in uh, in France last year. There was some guy who was in some some game um, where where you know some other player stabbed him in the game or whatever, and his and his character died or whatever. Uh-huh. And this guy spent six months tracking this other player down like figuring out who he was in oh, real man. life and where he lived and then he went and stabbed the guy <laughs> in real life and fortunately he was also was bad at it in real life too because the other guy didn't die okay but, good uh, <laughs> but but yeah it is it's insane <laughs> Like that, these uh, we can build these virtual worlds, um, and, and even with just like uh, attributing some points to squares and diamonds yeah. or whatever, that that can that can get people so much more worked up about it. And and this is really just you know kind of imaginary stuff. It, it is, but I mean, um, you know, it, it, if you're playing a game and you and you level up and like the heavens open and a golden cloud of sparks, you know, come down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If, imagine you were in a classroom and like, you, you know, you finally understood the quadratic equation and like, you know, <laughs> right. golden sparks, you know, flew down or whatever. And, you know, music played, you, you'd be pretty excited. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. Well, that's a very good point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's actually why I don't, you know, I don't own a gaming system myself because I was, uh, I had no control over myself uh-huh. when, when I gamed. Um, yeah. Uh, and it is, it's very interesting what they're doing, you know, especially as far as, um, you know, education and informing. I think there's some game where they've, where they've taken um, all of the astronomy data that they can and they've replicated um, the universe, universe oh, wow. to like the best of our knowledge. And, and you can go out and explore distant galaxies and stars. And I, I guess physicists have actually learned things from these simulations and realizing wow. that that there's more dust in our Milky Way, and that's why it appears as a certain way. And, and I, I know that uh, a group of researchers, um, they're looking at protein folding. So, so proteins have any number of joints, I guess, that can be folded over in different ways. Mm-hmm. And, and there's, a, there's kind of an optimal way that you can fold a protein to have the, the least amount of uh, energy. I'm, I'm probably explaining this poorly. But there's a game called Fold It!, uh, where you they took real proteins and they turned them into a game and people you get more points the less the the, the tighter the configuration mm. and so you know they, they've had computers trying to crunch all the possible ways that you can fold a protein and and, and you know computers they're going to just dumbly go through like every possible combination well that's trillions of combinations because of all the different sites that the thing can bend at they turned it into a game, let people play it for a while, and within a couple months, people had figured out this really stable, low-energy configuration of a protein, and it actually helped them in the real world mm. design an HIV drug that really? fought against HIV. Yeah. That's so, amazing. Gamification, well, saving the world here. Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's, it's much like, you know, there's been game theory's been around forever and prisoner's dilemma and oh yeah sort of thing that's given a lot of insight into evolutionary theory and, and yes uh, that's really how altruism and cooperation and aggression works and that that sort of thing yeah um uh that uh yeah that's fascinating it's so uh, and 
you also do some stuff with uh, with virtual reality, speaking of kind of yeah, where we've done a little bit going. of that, yeah. Um, what have you done? Where where is virtual? I I didn't get a chance to try one of the helmets on. Oh where, yeah, where, where are we at now? With, with we're this? on the cusp, I, <laughs> I would say. I mean, that I think we're finally at a place where the the technology's pretty much there. I mean, from from what I've seen from like the Oculus Rift and and some of these other things. Uh, it's it's pretty much there. Um, however, it is kind of the cutting or the bleeding edge of technology. Uh, you need you know you need a pretty good gaming computer in order to be able to run these things. You've got a you know there's a lot of data they're calculating because they're taking into account like your head position and and, and your rotation and 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 then they've got to coordinate with the 3D model and the computer to update the projected images so that you know all the all the stuff. Um, we, we've done a little bit of work looking at uh, people's sense of immersion in virtual reality. So is it true that when you wear one of these VR goggles, you feel more like a part of the action, that you're actually in the story as opposed to like observing the story? Um, and we, we've done some preliminary work. Um, we we uh, did the roller coaster simulator that, that you have in, in, in Oculus Rift, and we hooked people up to a heart rate monitor and a skin conductance monitor. So if you um, if you get nervous, your palms sweat, um, or really if you get kind of physiologically activated, you, your palms sweat. And even if you have two electrodes on two fingers, even a little tiny imperceptible to the naked eye change in your skin, uh, the moisture on your skin will change the electrical signal conductance. So you can monitor and watch in real time as people's kind of uh, their 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 um, physiological activation goes up and down and, and things like that. So we put people in a um, roller coaster simulation, either in the Oculus Rift where they're wearing the you know it's like they're in virtual reality, or watching the same thing on a, a computer screen. And we showed that um, uh, at least during the the drop when the when the, the roller coaster you know you clickety clack up to the top and then you go over the the falls uh, on a roller coaster during that part. Uh, your heart rate is higher in the virtual reality. You have more skin conductance and things like that. Um, unfortunately, we were using the first generation of the Oculus Rift, and people had significantly more um, nausea. Mm. And, and, and the nausea, um, some of our other studies, we, we looked at um, people playing Skyrim, either in the Oculus Rift or, or uh, looking at the computer screen. And not surprisingly, um, the more nauseous you, you get... It, it blocks your enjoyment. And, yeah. You know, I mean, makes sense. Yeah. It's, uh, this video game's getting way less fun the more, right. I'm, th the more I'm throwing up. That right. seems like it's, that's going to be a tough thing to get around because there's car sickness and, yeah. and space sickness is, is, you know, basically this this um, fundamental problem of, of the disconnect between your eyes perceiving motion and, yeah. and your body feeling and perceiving motion. And there's, I don't know how they're going to... There's some of it they can overcome. And and I think that... Uh, I haven't tried the, the newest uh, the Oculus Rift that's going to come out the first quarter. Um, but um, what you can do is you can increase the, the refresh rate of the, of the images. You can be um, better coupling in the timing between when you move your head and then when the visuals move. So if there's any lag between like I look to the left and then the, the thing moves, you know, across my eyes, that causes nausea like mm -hmm. immediately. 
Um, so the, the better the technology is at, at refreshing that really quickly, that can solve a lot of that problem where the, 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 what your brain expects the image to do across your eye matches your vestibular system. When those two things don't match, uh, that's when you get sick because they say that, um, and I haven't tried this personally, but apparently if you're poisoned, yeah. Uh, your your brain's like, hey, why are we having this neurological issue? Why are right. why is there a disconnect in communication between these two parts? This didn't happen in our evolutionary history, and we must have eaten something bad that's causing this. Neurological. So let's get it out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, you don't want that. Um, yeah, I certainly don't want that in my lab. So <laughs> we have to be careful about yeah. like you know, look if you're feeling you know, just close your eyes, just take the thing off if you're not feeling well. Uh, so far we haven't had anybody get sick, but, um, yeah. So I think that's the big challenge right now is just getting them so that they're high enough fidelity that you, you, the average person is not going to feel nauseous as as they use them. And it seems like they're getting there. Mm. Um, and, and so, uh, so I, I miss, uh, so are you finding that there is more immersion with the virtual reality than observed? Yeah. So they, they rate, they rate it as being significantly more immersed, Um, So there's a, there's an immersion scale that says like, I felt like I was actually in the action or I felt like I was a part of it and questions like that. And yeah, people will rate that higher if they're, if in the virtual reality than if they watch it on a computer monitor. Does anyone have any of those readings, the blood pressure or whatever else from an actual roller coaster ride to to compare it against? I don't, I'm sure they do, right? Someone Um, had to have. Yeah, It'd be although, interesting to know what the difference is between. Yeah, real I'm life. sure it's not as uh, I'm sure it's not as as um, big a response in in the lab when you're sitting in a chair when you just get the visual input as if you were actually on a roller coaster and it goes over the edge and I mean now you've got all this vestibular input right, and you right. feel like your your stomach is kind of yeah. yeah. Of course. But I'm just I thinking. I would still of, be curious what the true like difference is in heart rate or. Whatever. Yeah, I'd be so. So as of course, as I'm, I'm a researcher, and I'm thinking, oh man, getting IRB approval is going to be <laughs> human subjects approval to you know like. Then again, you'd also probably have people signing up for your experiments right and left. Like, oh know, yeah, right? you'd have no trouble finding. Right. We're going to go on a roller coaster first. Yeah, and, yeah. like finding men to participate in sex studies or something like that. <laughs> right, so, or uh, finding men to uh, the the hard one for us is um, is finding non video gamers. So sometimes uh, you want to have people who don't, and and in particular, male non video gamers mm. uh, are a rare breed. It's it's hard to find them. Yeah, it's a. It's interesting with the gamification stuff because also, I mean, you'll you'll hear stuff in society about how, you know, you know, people people will hear one crazy story about this bizarre thing that happens in France with a stabbing or something right. like that, and then people immediately go, "Video games are ruining the world," or you right. know, whatever, and everyone's yeah. getting violent, and, and, which is just what has always happened with every form of. Entertain. There's like when when romance novels came out like centuries ago, there was a lot of hubbub about like these women are neglecting their children for these. <laughs> That's just you know it takes people a little while to get used to this stuff, but it is it is pretty interesting. I think it I think it kind of highlights um, you know pe- people think that reality, whatever that even is exactly, you know, you study perception, it's reality is mm-hmm. kind of a fickle or our idea of it isn't, yeah. isn't probably as an, on cue as what we think it is. Mm-hmm. But, um, 
but people think this is very important, this being in tune with reality or whatever, which most people would rather spend eight hours in virtual reality than cubicle reality. You know? Right. Yeah. And, 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 and there's something I think about the, um, the sense of immediate feedback. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is kind of interesting that you, you'll see pictures of, you know, a whole family's out to dinner and like, they're all looking at their phones or something, right. you know, or, um, uh, the one that always gets me is, um, there, people go to a concert or something and they're, or fireworks on the 4th of July and they don't actually watch the fireworks. They hold their phone up and are like looking at their phone. Right. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, be, be in the moment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's frustrating me as a performer being a comedian. I mean, texting and that kind of thing is just a real nightmare for me. And people don't realize how distracting it is and everything else. And it's all very understand as what people need to be coached through and told to turn their, Cell phones off in it, but I also get it from the other side of things where, so before technology, you go to a fireworks show and, uh, you know, it's nice, and then you, you want to tell people right. about it. What do you guys say? There's a green one. And then yeah. there is like, a, you know, what do you, what do you say? Whereas, right. you know, if, if you can take a little video here and there, the grand finale, you're still probably viewing most of it and then you get to share and that's part of you know social life is very important to yeah us. it's like um reliving it many times sort of at a crappy quality <laughs> yeah, versus yeah, yeah. uh well and, and and with the phones i i face the same kind of issues when i teach oh yeah and uh at, at first i was i especially i i teach one class in you know general psychology class and like 200 people in it or whatever there have been a couple times when i see people like really into their phones like just totally oblivious and i will start talking about them and then look at them i've done that a couple times with the idea that the entire class is going to look at them and that's going to you know kind of quash that behavior first of all they just don't notice right. they're so into the phone they don't you know it just it doesn't work so I'm like, okay i'll just move on the second thing is um i saw i had a student who who was on the phone or whatever. And then he came to talk to me after class. And I, I said something to him. I was like, Hey, you know, I, I noticed you're on your phone or whatever. And he said, Oh, well, English is not my first language. Um, so I'm, I'm always looking up terms that you're uh. using. And, and I've heard from, you know, other people, uh, they're looking up like on Wikipedia or they're, so they're actually engaged. Right. They're actually intellectually trying to learn and they're doing exactly what I as an instructor would want. So eventually I just finally figured, you know what? It just it's their it's their dollars for their education. If they want to come in, you know, I, I can't stop them. Um, right. I, I do go through a whole spiel at the beginning of the semester. I, I go through the studies and I go, if you're on your laptop, you're not going to learn as well as if you, if you write notes mm-hmm. by hand yeah. because you can't write as fast as you can type. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you type, you tend to kind of transcribe, but you're not really thinking about the information. If you can't write that fast, you have to sort of condense and distill it. And, and that act of, of, a, of thinking about the meaning is, is ah. what causes you to learn something That's and to put it into your own words. So I, I, had, I knew that, you know, handwriting things and proof memory. And I, I didn't know why that was. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, just like having to teach something or whatever, you have to put it in your own words. And Right. Well, and, and there's, you know, there's, there's only so much you can do. I mean, uh, you know, I hate to say it. I, you, you, 
But, you know, you, you put it out there, you provide the circumstances for people to do well, and you give them everything they can, and you tell them, here, you know, if you want to succeed, especially as a cognitive guy, you know, here's how you enhance your memory, here's how you should study, you should space it out, you should, you know, study in multiple places, and all these other things we know about how memory works. All I can do is, is provide them the information and hope they do it, and some of them do and some of them don't. Hopefully they were paying attention to that first class on paying attention. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Otherwise you're really screwed. Right. Um, it, so, so you also, uh, I mean, throughout, I, I got a tour of, of uh, several of what other people are working on in, mm-hmm. in the department. And, and uh, you guys do a lot of um, uh, kind of bigger, like social issue yeah. um, kind of kind of work um can you talk talk a little like we we did well for one and i don't i don't, I don't want to put you in a spot where make you uncomfortable talking about anything political or whatever but I, it was a very interesting conversation mm. about uh we went over and um and and uh we showed oh shoot what it was, was dr joel suss yeah. yeah and he does he does some work with um with uh, gun control and gun training and he had done gun training uh, mm-hmm. with his life in the past and and uh, uh, the idea was to do people really know how guns work as well as they mm-hmm. think that they do which um, just to, when's this going to come out maybe a month or two ago um, we we had we did a whole episode on kind of the illusion of explanatory depth. Our, our brain uh, kind of tricks us into thinking that we understand fully how things work, and, yep. and often that is not the case. And and uh, so I passed the very first. I didn't see all the questions, but I passed the very first test. They show a little video of these uh, of of the guns, and then you see was there a bullet in the chamber? Or is it still cocked? And, right. And uh, the. These sort of things that would be very easy to implement as tests, just like yeah, um, you know when when I had uh, when I had Sean Green on, who, mm-hmm. who you mentioned, we talked about you know it's kind of frustrating with him how how the driving tests you're looking at an eye chart. Well, yeah, why why right. are you looking at an eye chart? Because it's easy to it's it's easy to test an eye chart. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Yeah, but you're not putting someone in a driving simulator or something No, like that. well, or even um, uh, there's something called the useful field of view test, which is sort of like um, how easily can you expand your visual attention to the, the both the center of the visual field and the periphery at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's been significantly correlated with your ability to drive. But it's a little harder to test. It, it, it's it's kind of like the, uh, the the parable of the, the drunk man – looking for his keys outside the bar and he's, he's under the street lamp and they say, well, what, what, why are you looking here? Well, I dropped him over by the bar, but the light's much better here. You know, it's, it's, so you do the easy thing, uh, instead of maybe the, the correct thing. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, it's still, it seems like, um, it, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard. I, I think also a lot of people maybe don't know that this, I didn't know that this would be available where you can just show people a whole bunch of videos of guns in different circumstances right. and quiz people. Do you know if it's loaded well, right now? If you pulled the trigger on this gun right now, what, what would, would happen? happen? Mm-hmm. Do you know? That seems like that would be pretty important information I, to know if you were a gun owner who has a gun in the house oh, and sure. wants to protect their family and make Absolutely. sure that there aren't misfires and everything else. 
or even if you is for protection, you would want to know that if an intruder is there, if you pull the trigger, it's going to fire. Exactly. <laughs> this, this seems like very basic kind stuff of, that yeah. would that who would be opposed to right. testing this? No, yeah, I mean, regardless of where you are on on, on right. guns or whatever. If you're going to be interacting with this thing, which is a, a deadly instrument, you should know how to use it. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is this is new work he's just started. And um, as you as you described, you know, you said there's kind of short video clips where it shows, you know, some action happening, like putting the magazine in the gun and, you know, cocking it or, or whatever. And then you, he's, you're asked a series of questions. You know, is is there a bullet in the chamber? You know, um, would it fire if you pulled if you pulled the trigger? What would happen? Nothing. It would click or would go bang you know so just a couple of quick questions and um he's gearing up to start putting this survey out there to try to start getting a lot of information but it seems like a pretty reasonable way to to, Mm -hmm. i mean we we test people if if they drive and things like you know to learn how to drive so um, (laughs) yeah yeah. we're talking about uh, in this absolutely blew my mind. I oh, you're talking about that. How, how the, what, what's the new law that's taking effect here right. in Wichita? And well, it's in, it's in year, Kansas. Right? It's the state of Kansas. Okay. Um, and, and it's a law that was signed into effect uh, in 2013. But uh, they gave a four-year reprieve um, bef- to allow people to have time to implement it. But there, there's going to be a new law where um, anybody can carry a gun uh, – onto campus onto any camp camp you know college campus in in kansas can bring a gun into a classroom and that's perfectly legal the the law is uh, unless you have security such that you you know metal detectors and and secured exits and all that to make sure that nobody has a gun then it's sort of like anybody can have a gun right uh, to protect yourself is the idea but um just just speaking for myself personally i I, you know, you worry a little bit about uh, an eighteen-year-old kid who's under a lot of stress, and right. maybe on whatever mix of psychological medications or and, and psychological <laughs> circumstances in their yeah. own lives. I mean, who who knows? People, you know, get upset or have mental breakdowns, and and so you know, it's okay. From a, so, regardless of of whether you think the law is correct or not, and uh, we, we're, I'm on the faculty senate. Uh, and again, I'm just, I don't want to, I'm just speaking for myself, right? Right. But you have to think about, okay, does this, is this chilling towards academic freedom? Yeah. Right. Because, you know, am I going to be willing to talk about a, t- a controversial topic um, if I have this feeling that, oh, you know, somebody in the audience, you know, would, would it change your standup? To know that people absolutely. are packing. It would make me absolutely very, very uncomfortable because right. I, I mean, as a comedian, there is, um, and we've talked about um, on, on the program, um, you know, humor research and, and kind of there's this idea of this um, benign violation where every every joke inherently has a violation um, aspect of it that that you're kind of making benign enough or okay enough to be funny, but everyone has a subjective idea of where this kind of Venn diagram, they have kind of the sliding scale of, you know, what what might be the most edgy, 
most offensive thing one person's ever heard right. might be the lamest, most cliche point that I could make to another person. And right. you, there, it's just simply not possible to know where every single person in the room stands. And ultimately, I kind of have to factor in how things usually go mm-hmm. and... and, and uh, so it's just it's just not and and I get in arguments with sometimes people are, you know, answering their phone or texting right, through the yeah. whole show, and I ask them to stop five times, and then next thing you know we're in this argument and things get a little heated or someone needs to be kicked out because they're too drunk. I mean, there's in comedy clubs there's a two drink minimum in right. most clubs that you're forcing people to drink alcohol and now you're now you also have guns i mean i'm going into i'm working three weeks in texas coming up where now they have the open oh yeah carry that i don't i just don't feel comfortable with, with that and i'm it's, not scared of dying or anything else i just think it's a little bit sad from a society but point of it's point uh of view. i mean boy talk about a tough issue uh and, and it, it it's been woven into the fabric of America. I mean, it's the second amendment, right? Like right, d- right after the first amendment, yeah, yeah. it's the second one. And, the, and the, you know, the only two most people know, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> including myself, Yeah, maybe the, the fifth there, right? they, yeah. they mean on the fifth, but, uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, you know, thinking about another version of that, uh, so you have the added challenge where there, there's a two drink minimum. I can't imagine how my lectures would go. If there was like a two drink minimum. Yeah, yeah. I'd probably get uh, a lot more interesting, <laughs> interesting audience. Um, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, so it, I just, that was, we were talking about that before. Yeah. And, and I know it's not really necessarily even your work or whatever, but I just found that mind blowing and fascinating. And, and by the way, I think grades are going to improve quite a bit. You're going to have to be pretty <laughs> lax with your grading. Once, oh, once everyone has guns in the, God. in the room, just, I mean, oh, I, everyone from Wichita state's getting straight A's all of a sudden, <laughs> man, these teachers must be doing something incredible. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, it doesn't go into effect until July 1st, 2017. Um, I know a, a lot of people are very interested in seeing if, if they can bring back an exemption for college campuses, um, mm-hmm. school campuses. Um, it, it, it's a very interesting um, issue because I, I think because people are so passionate on, right. on both sides. And, um, you know, as I said, so, the, you know, in terms of the faculty Senate, we're, we're not discussing things, you know, and, and us as professors at, at Wichita State, we're not really discussing things in terms of like, what do you think about guns or what? But it's like, OK, given that this law is happening, how can we protect um, academic freedom? How can we ensure classroom safety mm-hmm. uh, and, and that sort of thing? And, and I don't know that we have a, a good answer yet. So it's it's something there's a lot of discussion about right now. It was interesting, the point that you made, not to dwell on it, but but I, I mean, it's so true, the idea of, okay, if this guy has a gun, and now there's a hero who's got going to have a gun. Uh-huh. Well, there might be multiple other people in the room that also have a gun, and they don't know if that guy's a hero or just another guy right. with a gun. Another they shooter. don't know if this is two people working together. And, yeah. and police are, are going to have a hard time identifying right. which is the good or the yeah. Uh, what a mess. Um, so anyway, we'll we'll get off that. Back on back on your subject. We um, uh, we're closing in on the hour mark. Um, what I I have um, I have my guests each week promote a nonprofit of their choice. And uh, so so what would uh, you like to promote? All right. Um, well, being a, a vision researcher 
uh, care about vision a lot. Um, and so I, I want to promote the American Macular Degeneration Foundation. Um, and that's at uh, macular.org. And so that's an organization that's doing some really interesting work trying to cure age-related macular degeneration, which affects a whole lot of people. Um, and I had, a, um, I had a situation a year or two ago where um, I had something called central serous retinopathy, which is uh, there was a separation f- uh, on my left eye uh, beneath, b- between my retina and the, the back of my eye, a little bit. Not much. It's it's okay. It's better now. But I had a period of time where I was losing some vision in my central visual field in my left eye. And so I got kind of like a taste of what somebody with AMD would be going through. And it was not fun. So, you know, I, I think this is a, especially, you know, thinking about the baby boom generation, it's really getting older. We've got this huge segment of the population that's heading into this age where people are going to start losing, you know, central visual field loss, which really affects things like reading, driving. I mean, you can't look where you want to see. You got to look right. off to the side and, and and kind of develop the other periphery in your eye and help, which is not as high resolution as the central part of your eye. So, mm. it, it's a really uh, tough disease, and and I hope people will support um, the uh, AMDF organization fantastic and then everyone can also of course go to the here we are podcast.com website and we'll have a link on the site for that so i want to this is just something that's kind of particularly relevant for my life as we wrap up because i i travel all the time i don't i i rarely cook because it's just not very practical most of the time i eat out quite a bit and um and and you've done some work with uh, you, you sometimes have restaurants send menus and have oh yeah yeah do some of the eye scanning stuff right to see yeah this, see what works I'm mostly curious how um, how restaurants are trying to trick me into the high <laughs> high profit margin um, food right well um, yeah so we've done some work with a restaurant consultant um, who helps go and he goes into a restaurant and helps does every kind, you know, all kinds of stuff like how the servers interact with the customers and how they, their decor and how they design the menus. And, and so, um, there'll be simple things like a call out box. Um, so like, uh, just putting a box around some item tends to draw your eye to it. Um, oh, yeah. uh, having a picture of that particular food, I fall for your, both of yeah. those all well, of the time. <laughs> it's so much easier to yeah. imagine that food, right? right. And to, when you can see uh, what it's going to look like. Even though I know damn well it's not going to look like that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or especially never if does. I'm not at fast food or so. You're, oh, or, yeah. You know, if I'm at fast food, rather. Yeah. Um, so so um, that's kind of interesting. And, and um, thinking about things like, um, you know, their, their special, uh, whatever their specials are, um, and, and whether they can get people... Because, you know, I fall for the special thing. Also, throw a new on there. Ah, oh, I'm into it. Right. Ooh, right. New. House house signature, you know, signature dish or yeah, whatever. I go for that, too. Yeah. New for whatever reason. I can't believe it tricks me so often. <laughs> but I always think like. I, I guess I'm such an optimist that humans are, are keep on improving on things. Oh, like, well, if it's new, it's going to be better. <laughs> it has to be. <laughs> That's great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so we, we, we did some research uh, in the eye tracker 
showing people restaurant menus and kind of giving them scenarios like, you know, okay, imagine you're ordering breakfast, you know, what, what, what would you like to order from the menu? And then tracking where their eyes go and, and seeing which of these kinds of things tend to like draw people's attention. One thing that's really interesting, um, one of the things this restaurant consultant does um, is uh, he a lot of times um, will declutter the menus. So, so dramatically reducing the number of items that they have, the number of pictures and things like that. Um, and, um, yeah, so the, the, I should, I should give him a shout out, I guess it's, yeah, it's yeah. Bill Main, uh, restaurant consultant, uh, Northern California. He's a great guy. Hmm. Um, and, and we were able to show in our laboratory that, um, if you put fewer pictures on the menu, people actually look at them more. So when there are more pictures, people actually looked collectively, spent less time looking at pictures than if there were fewer. It's like they're, they were like overwhelmed or something. Yeah, I always um, kind of usually – and I feel like most fine dining restaurants have a very small, um, simple menu or as far as number of choices uh -huh. that you can make or, or they'll even have like a prefix thing or something like that. I've yeah. always just – in, rather than you know whatever um, Denny's or whatever, no, no offense to Denny's, they're a big sponsor of the show, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know uh, you can get everything under the sun, which sometimes I am in the mood for sure. something like yeah. that. But but um, yeah, I I always thought that maybe I liked it because. You know, when you specialize in a few things, maybe your quality is going to go up. Right. But it might very well just be that I don't like going through the cognitive effort of having to pick a million. Well, and then, and then also um, on the back end side, I think for the restaurants, when you have such a huge menu with, you know, you think about how many ingredients you have to have on hand and then it costs a lot of money because you have to maintain those and more training and more training. And it's, it, yeah, I mean, we, uh, from the cognitive literature, we know, you know, the more choices you have to make, you can kind of have paralysis. Uh, so yeah, there, there are any number of reasons why uh, maybe simpler is better. Well, very cool. Well, thank you, Evan Palmer. For oh, sure. Me. Sure. This is fun. Yeah. And thanks for the tour of the lab and everything. It was, it was super interesting. And uh, thank you guys for listening and being curious. And I'll talk with you next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Since you guys are podcast fans, you may want a recommendation. Uh, I, I'd like to quick plug uh, a good friend of mine's podcast called The Riff Board. It's a real good contrast to this show because uh, you don't have to think whatsoever. You get done learning all this new fancy information from the Here We Are podcast. You got to turn off the thinker for a little while, give it a little rest, and just have some laughs. Uh, go check out The Riff Board podcast. Uh, podcast it's comedian dave Waite, who's one of the funniest characters in the whole world and there's a mystery host uh each week as well and you guys will never ever guess who the mystery host is don't even try to because you'll never ever guess it so uh check out the the uh the riff board podcast uh it's a it's a real celebration of of immaturity and silliness and uh very enjoyable Good contrast to this show. So check that out for me. And um, coming up next week, uh, Mark Schnurgert is um, is on the show. We're talking about um, uh, microbiology, and and really we just kind of went off um, 
and talked about the importance of science for for most of the episode and it was a really uh really really fun interesting conversation i think you guys are gonna like it so make sure and tune in next week thank you all for listening say uh seinfeld was on an island yeah. and he was blowing boris karloff what would it what would that be like <laughs> it might go something like this oh mr karloff i loved you and frankenstein and i love giving you a blowjob why mr seinfeld i'd love having you fuck